Paramhansa Yogananda, a biography by Swami Kriyananda, Talk 9 by Asha Praver, April 10th, 2012, Copyright 2012, Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto. Good evening, all. So, let's have another fun night. What do you think? Does anybody have any opening comments, or is it all up to me? (laughs) I believe I remember where we are. We're on number 18. We finished about his powerful voice, which is what I think was the last thing we did. I always mean to mark it with a pencil, and then I forget. Thank you, John. Um, Number 18. He had great divine power, as we saw in the story of that thug who menaced him and in Lakeside Park in Chicago. That's all Swami says. There's one sentence on the point number 18. He had great divine power. But the interesting point here is the example he uses of that um, criminal who tried to scare Master and, and dominate him. I was thinking about this. Uh, I think the operative words here is that he had access to power that was so far beyond what the normal person can use. Most people have physical power. I mean, you, uh, it, when menaced by someone like a criminal, some people would resort to physical force or to the force of weapons or to the force of anger, um, you know, or any kind of other sort of egoic-based power where you try to pull the energy out from you. Um, the interesting thing about that story about the thug was that Master merely raised his voice you know, he, you, he obviously didn't threaten him in any physical way. I mean, there's no mention that he did. And the interesting thing about it was the master wasn't even actually angry. Uh, in, in fact, in many cases, there's a, a, a law of magnetism that's in place that if he had expressed anger toward a criminal person who would be inclined toward anger himself, the chances of instead of inspiring fear in that person, he would have just as likely inspired retaliation because on that vibration, they would feed on each other. Um, many, many years ago, and this is a little bit off, off the story of what we're talking about, but um, there, was a, this, there was a woman in our community. Um, this was many years ago in the 70s. And we were told, and it seemed possible, that she had certain disincarnate entities that were... Um, in possession of her mind. And when she would go to sleep, um, those of us who lived close to her had the distinct impression that they would wander around looking for someone else, you know, to entertain them in the night. And uh, several of us had, you know, whether they were imaginary or not, I can't say, but what seemed like real experiences of being visited by these most unpleasant spirits. And when they came into the space where I was sleeping and sort of woke me up with this bad vibe in the room, I have to confess it scared me. And I turned on the light and I, you know, I kind of tried to create enough energy to get rid of them. And later I heard that certain kinds of herbs would scare them away, so I hung them on the ceiling and things like that. My friend, Seva, who was also visited by the same entities, wasn't at all afraid of them. And in fact, what was so fun to me, she took basically the same attitude toward them that she took toward all of us. She was the mother of our little group of of nuns at that point. She said, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be bothering me like this. (laughs) And in a loving way, she simply scolded them. 
She told them what you're doing is not right. It's not good for you. It's not good for anyone. You really need to, you know, think about what you're doing and straighten up your act. She wasn't angry, but she was just forceful. But she was totally without fear. They just didn't scare her. And later on, when we had some discussion about it, we all realized that fear is the link to entities like that. And that's been an important um, understanding since then that I've shared with many people, is that if you get on the wavelength that they're on, that's how they can affect you. They can feed, literally. I was reading um, the book by um, James von Prague, who is well known because he, he sees what he calls ghosts, which are basically spirits that are earthbound spirits. And uh, he doesn't go to the astral world. He sees earthbound spirits. Um, and whether they're good or bad, he still calls them ghosts. Uh, I suppose they're not bound to the earth if they're good, but they might be hanging around anyway. Let me think what the point was. But he talked about how they feed on your negative emotions. And they try to generate your negative emotions, whether it's greed or anger or um, intoxication and so on, because they get energy from that. And that's what they're trying to do. But if you don't give them any point of connection, then they, they can't. There's nothing they can do because there's nothing there for them. That's why you don't really have to live in fear of these things at all. You just have to not provide openings and feeding grounds for them. Well, what's true on that more subtle level, it's true obviously in life. If you have an angry person and you get angry at them, that's just kind of like mother's milk to them. This is just what they want, you know, is to be able to fight. And if you don't fight, there's nothing they can do. So this man was a bully, and he was trying to, to use his personal power to get over Master and get money out of him. In this case, it was his job. And uh, Master just absolutely refused to relate to him on the level in which he was relating. First, he just tried to be nice to him, and when niceness doesn't work, he just simply overwhelmed him with a, com- a completely different kind of power, a power that the man had absolutely no access to and no defense against. Um, first, because it was so much bigger than any ego could be, above all. And it, he was just relating from another plane that the man couldn't reach. And that's uh, an aspect of uh, spiritual people that we don't always think of because we tend to like to think of spirituality as being nice. And we don't realize that it's what, what kind of power is there. Swamiji has mentioned on many occasions in other contexts, you have to appreciate how much power there is in a divine person. This is important not merely for our appreciation of them, but for us, and this is the whole point of the exercise we're doing in this class, is for us to understand what is actually genuinely spiritual behavior on our parts. Because sometimes people are afraid of being powerful. They think it isn't, pers- uh, it isn't spiritual to be so. Or they're afraid to really have force, um, afraid they won't be able to keep it in line, um, afraid it'll make them stand out. I mean, we have lots of fears. Um, one of the biggest fears is that we feel we won't be able to uh, direct it properly, that it'll get away from us. But by understanding that it's a salient feature of a great master, we realize that we simply have to learn to handle it, that we're not ever going to just go from being low suppressed energy to being perfect infinite energy without going through the middle period. I was talking to a friend of mine and she was complaining to me that she was um, experiencing a certain lack of equanimity in her life. But what I realized as she was expressing it to me, and I actually tried to help her understand, is she always kept her moods and her inclination to become anxious and various other qualities that, you know, all of us have. 
she kept it in bounds by keeping her energy low enough that nothing about her ever got to the point where she just couldn't always keep a clamp on it. And what was happening was she was gradually beginning to just, in a general sense, raise her energy level. And whereas an aberration won't show up if the disc is spinning slowly, when it begins to to spin a little faster, any wobble will become exaggerated. So there was the impression in her mind that she was going backwards spiritually because she wasn't able to control all of her responses to life. But in fact, she was going forward spiritually. She was just having to learn to operate on a higher level and to be able to be um, steady on a higher level of energy. Um, Another woman friend that I knew, she controlled her, in her case, she had a real um, difficult inclination in in her mental makeup. And she controlled it by whenever anything got bad, she just went tamasic meaning she just went real low energy. She'd, she'd, you know, just collapse and watch television and go into a mood and refuse to relate to anyone. And she wasn't really conquering anything. She was basically becoming intoxicated. She wasn't drinking or taking drugs, but she was intoxicating herself on low energy whenever her mental state started to get away from her. And then she got married. (laughs) (laughs) And she married a rather energetic person and she basically lost the safety valve and, and had some real difficult emotions to deal with that she didn't, she'd never really had the courage to know were there because she'd always intoxicated herself with low energy. And so it's important for us to understand that a master is extremely powerful and therefore for us to walk in his footsteps we will have to come into higher energy and real power. And if we make a mess of that higher energy and the power that's in us. Well, that's just too bad. That's just the process of learning. I remember many years ago, I mean, I've always had high energy um, and my energy has often gotten away from me. Many times it's gotten away from me. And I remember once during the very early years I was at Ananda, I was working for Swami Kriyananda as his secretary, which I did, it was really my my early job. So I had that situation when I was not very um, mature. It's the only word I can think of. I think Swami just knew he had to get a grip on me really early or else God knows what would have happened. And he was able to manage my energy. And I remember once I was in the market at Ananda Village and something was annoying me and I was expressing myself with a lot of words at a fairly high volume in a fairly high pitch with a perfectly self-evidently lack of centered, calm centeredness. And somebody came up to me and said, you know, it's really not appropriate. It's sort of like this. It's really not appropriate for Swami Kriyananda's secretary to behaving like this. <laughs> behaving like this. I've never been very good at hypocrisy. And I, especially then, I've learned since that not all right behavior is hypocritical. <laughs> But I just said, well, she is, so get used to it. That's just the way it's happening, you know. It was like, what kind of an answer is that? You think I would be behaving like this if I had a choice? Like, is that a helpful remark to me? You know that you're, you're shaming yourself in this situation? Certainly I am. But if I couldn't, I wouldn't. And, and, there, and I, I don't commend myself for being as off the wall as I was or being as rude as I was in response to the comment. 
But I do commend myself for understanding there's just no point in play acting. Because if you've got more energy than you can manage, then you're going to have to learn to manage it. You're not going to master it by trying to become intoxicated and become lower energy. It's an extremely important point spiritually. In the context of Swamiji speaking about um, emotions and negative emotions and how emotions can get away from you and so on like that. But he said very strongly, and he said it on a number of occasions, it's far better to be overly emotional than it is to be self-censoring and hold all of that back. Because you haven't conquered it merely by censoring it. It's just simply waiting there for the day when it comes out. And you don't conquer it by censoring it. Censoring is different than transcending it. Transcending it is that your consciousness actually shifts to another level and you're simply, you don't have those vibrations anymore. Self-censoring is just the fear of having to face and deal with um, both the thing itself and the possible consequences of those feelings. And there's just no progress in that. Is It says it right in the Bhagavad Gita. The words in the Bhagavad Gita are, what does it avail you merely to suppress? And Swami puts it in more plain English. It just comes out in some weird way later. And you've absolutely gained nothing, except that when it finally does express itself, you don't know where it came from, you don't know what it's connected to. So not only do you have the wrong emotion, not only do you have the wrong expression of the wrong emotion, but you have it at the wrong time. So you're just, you've just created for yourself such a mess. It's far better to, to be who you are and then learn to master it because sooner or later we have to be completely in full divine power but of course have the purity of heart to work with it. But there's no shortcut to getting there. It's just the way of life. So we live with it. And the great advantage of spiritual community is that we all really understand this. And so people make mistakes, and eh, there it is. You just live with it. If you're in the world, people become, people feed you back anger. In the spiritual community, people may um, may sometimes feed you back anger, but everybody goes home and says, "Wait a minute, this isn't where we want to be," and then we just all get to start over and work with that. You know, you have a you have an endless number of infinite you have an infinite number of chances to get it right, so we might as well get into the game. It's a very scary thing, though, and it's a hard thing for people to understand, especially when they define the spiritual path as being nice. You know, we think of this. this, The thugs were trying to get money from him. He tried to be nice. didn't work. That was that. He just gave them what they needed, fearlessly, totally impersonally. As soon as they were gone, he just sat down, as the incident says, and once again just enjoyed the moon rise. (laughs) But it was what was needed, so he had access to anything that was needed. When we have limited our power and limited our responses to a narrow spectrum, we do not have access. I mean, I think of it like this too. You know, God needs us to be able to do whatever is needed. And if we have limited our power, then we cannot serve in the way that he would sometimes want because we just don't have it to do. I remember once in the middle of the lawsuits, um, this really awful lawyer was following me and just harassing me in his way. He was kind of a crazy guy. And uh, he was really unpleasant, but I was so pleased with myself. I was very pleased with myself. I just turned back and just stood up to him. 
And, you know, I don't remember what I said, but I think it was something, I'm going to call the marshal on you if you don't leave me alone, you know, something like that. But later I thought, isn't that great? You know, I wasn't cowed by him. I just turned around and just told him what I thought, which you might think is my nature, but no, I'm like everyone else. I can get intimidated, you know, and not want to do that. And I was, I was very pleased because I didn't even decide to do it. I just turned and did it. And I thought, oh, that's a real victory for me. Just let the power out if you need to use it. It was the, absolutely the appropriate response. He was just being horrible, you know, trying to chase me down the elevator. So think about it. You have to practice where it's easier on this one. You can't, you know, start blasting thugs out of the park right away because you might not, you might not be bigger than they are. <laughs> okay, does that make sense? Okay, number... Yes, of course. You need to speak into the microphone, though, for the reason of the recording. And the microphone is... Somebody point. It's, a, it's on the end of the wire at the top. It's the little square thing right... That's it. That's the microphone. But you have to hold it closer. Uh-huh. Energy and vibration, those are two different things. Energy has a vibration. Okay. Energy has a vibration? Sure. Uh-huh. Well, I was thinking that Masters was... Had, See, I don't know all the terminology. No, that's all right. And we're making all these words up, Marilyn, so okay. it's a very good idea to ask what the heck we're talking okay. about. The master uh-huh. has a high vibration. Right. So, and anger is kind of a lower vibration. Right. So his, no matter what his energy is, right. he probably would never get angry. Right. That's exactly right. Because anger comes from thwarted desire. And if you have no desire, you have no reason to be angry. Because that's a lower vibration. Well, if you, if you have egoic preferences, which is you have desires, that desire isn't just the desire for food or, or money or something, but a desire is that things have to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. And when you have desires and your desires are not fulfilled, that's where anger comes from. I want money and I don't have it. I want power and I don't have it. I want importance in the world and I don't have it. And whenever our desires are thwarted, that's, that's what always leads to anger. Anger is always based on a thwarted desire. Okay? Are vibrations a kind of energy? A, a vibrations are... The vibrations... Yes, because energy itself is just a force. And so the quality of the energy is defined, you might say, by what vibration it... Okay. By the vibration of it, Yeah. Okay, so then there's other energies like tamasic and rajasic. Exa- and yes, exactly. Other, just, or, there's lots of different ways you can define oh, the okay. vibrations. I mean, master could put out that same amount of power as love, and he would, he would, just be, he would overwhelm you with love. He put it out in this case as a, you would call it, a stop that, don't do that anymore kind of energy. He put it out as a counterforce to this man's demands, Master just used his energy to create a wall that stopped him and, in fact, unnerved him, so he ran away. And so the vibration was, I would say, forceful, scolding, disciplining. I would say it would be a a vibration of discipline. He disciplined the man. Mm -hmm. Not like he would discipline a disciple, but he disciplined him so that he couldn't do what he was trying to do. But there would be no reason in the world why Master would be angry at him. 
because Master didn't need for him to be different. Mm -hmm. But he, Master did want to sit there, and he knew that this man wasn't behaving well, so he disciplined him. But a mother can discipline a child, a father can discipline a child, a teacher can discipline a child without a shred of anger, but might be very stern and very exact. You will not do that again if it's a very harmful or dangerous thing. You will not do that again, but that doesn't mean you're angry. But if you just say, you won't do that again, you know, nothing's going to happen from that. Or if you do it in such a way, you terrible, horrible person, you're dreadful child, you know, that's a whole different vibration than just, you will not do that again. Do you understand me? You will not do that again. Yeah. Does okay. that make sense? <clears throat> well, I'll just keep listening. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's actually more subtle. I mean, I know you're being more introduced to these things than some of the other people in the room, and it is more subtle than it appears. Because, and that's partly what I'm talking about, because we have an association, we think power in itself has to have a specific vibration. Or energy, or just a maximum, a lot of energy itself has inherently a specific vibration. It doesn't, it's neutral until some feeling energy is put on top of it. It seems like different energies can be mixing together. That's also true. Things are not pure. Right. The mother may really not want that child to run out into the street again. And a tremendous, for example, a lot of fear could be in the force of a, a parent disciplining a child when the child's safety is involved. Or the mother, you know, there's just lots of things can get really mixed up. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And especially with us, we're all mixed up. You know, sometimes we do the right thing with the wrong energy, with the wrong vibration. In the story, in the path, Master talks about how one of the members of the Hollywood church, there was some nefarious thing going on in the church, and this man, Mr. Jacob was his name, stood up and denounced the nefarious actions by others in, in public with anger. As a result of his denunciation, the situation was straightened out, but later Master thanked him for standing up but said it would have been better if you had done it without anger. And then because of that anger, Swami goes on to write, the man was eventually drifted off the path. Because he could have been energetic and emphatic, but he was genuinely angry, and that anger created dissonance in him. One mm -hmm. little last question. You said sure. at the beginning of that story that... Oh, you said... You said um, sometimes we use the wrong energy the wrong vibration. Did you mean those two words the same? Um, that's, why I'm, that's why it's hard when I'm talking. No, we, well, I, sometimes I say energy, wrong energy would mean energy with the wrong vibration. I'm, yeah, you're right. I'm confusing you by the way I'm using the words. Okay. Energy itself is neutral, but the vibration of that energy... See, part of the problem, Marilyn, is these are English words without exact meanings. Okay. So you, you're Just... right. If you're trying to be too precise... Listening to me, I'll contradict myself. Okay. And if that's where the problem is coming, that's the fact. I am contradicting. I'm not being consistent. Okay, I just need to, yeah, okay. It, it, yeah, that's a good, no, it's a good point. I am not being consistent. But 
to, for you to understand, vibration is the, fe- you might even say, the feeling quality associated with the energy, in this case, or the level of consciousness from which the energy emanates. Oh, okay. Vibration would be the feeling quality or the level of consciousness from which it emanates. The energy itself is just life force. Okay. I've been trying to figure this out for quite some time. Oh, no, it's a, it's a good point. Yeah, if you don't already know it, you have to learn it. Yeah. And how would you already know it? Yeah. yeah. But because English is inexact, I am a little random sometimes mm-hmm. <laughs> in the way I use the words. Thank you for helping. I think even Master's a little bit random. He is Master's also a little bit random if you try to pin him down because a lot of his speeches were extemporaneous and mm-hmm. he was also using, he was even more, he was just pinning words on a flow of energy. Mm-hmm. And he, he wasn't consistent. Yeah. When uh, Master's writings that we were looking at kept using the word feeling, mm-hmm. but sometimes he was talking about uplifted feeling, clear, clear, yeah. calm, calm feeling, and sometimes he was talking about attached, uh, agitated emotions, and, and yet the word always was feeling, and it just gets confusing. That's why uh, even a great Master's writings need editing, because... He'll, he'll, he'll know what he means and people can intuitively grasp it. But if you stop and look at it, it's not actually written there. And so someone else has to go through and make sure that the meaning is actually written there. And he just, it, that's a bothersome thing to make sure that all the words are exactly the right words when you know what you mean. <laughs> and so Master didn't have time to edit he just had time to write and he just put down the meaning and then it was also for the salvation of the disciples that then they got the job like Swamiji has had of going so deeply into the master's um, first drafts that he could really understand what the master said and made sure that all the words were there and meant exactly what he said. You see what a difference it is between the inspiration and the understanding of what the Gita passage meant and then lining up all the words so that they'll say exactly what he meant. Swamiji sometimes describes that process that he does as an uh-huh. editor as being the plumber. For the plumber. Ma- so master's ideas can flow the way they meant. That's exactly right. Yeah. And anybody who speaks extemporaneously is in danger of making grave errors. <laughs> I mean, sometimes catastrophic errors. You know, saying the opposite of what you mean, it happens to all of us. Many, well, this is not even extemporaneous, but many a light bearer has said, children of darkness forsake the light. You know, I mean, both words are right in front of you, and just the slightest slip of concentration, and boom, you're off. We all have horror stories. David and I suggested once that we raise our hands and chant Om and ask that we be refurbished in body, mind, and soul, (laughs) which caused such a fit of giggles on me, I could hardly go forward as I saw the little angels coming down and repainting us and (laughs) repairing the hinges. What were you going to say? It, it would be good to remember that truth doesn't start with words. We don't come up, we don't start with a bunch of words that we must uh, define very, very precisely and then proceed to build our truth out of those words. The truth is inherent and given to start with, and we may struggle to express that truth by choosing the right words, but the truth, it starts with the truth, and then we do our best, the best we can by putting the right words on them.
That's actually yeah. very well put. Yeah. I, I had a, the feeling once when Swami Kriyananda was giving a satsang in, in actually in this room, a, you know, a big satsang to a lot of people. He had such a flow of energy coming out of him that I could, um, I could, I could sense that he, the first thing he had was an inspiration and then a vibration of energy that was coming through him. Then he was transferring that vibration to us. And then about here, he started pasting words on it. And that the words were just pasted on this flow of energy. They were perfectly articulate. And you know, he, was, he was saying thoughts, but his own, um, the experience of what he was doing, there was so much that happened long before it got to the words. And the words, he just added the words. And so if you, and he was, he, they were good ideas, but if you were just listening to the words and just picking up the ideas, you were missing three quarters of what he was doing. He was just transferring energy to us and words were the medium because it was, we were more receptive that way than if he just sat there. I mean, some saints never speak because they just transfer the energy and they just don't bother to put words on it. I've often told you about the, that very spiritual Swami I met who was the first real holy man I met who was from India and I was about 19 when I met him. And he spoke and he, it wasn't that he spoke gibberish, but he did not speak, you know, in, in thrillingly intelligent concepts. He just randomly talked about this, that, and the other thing. And the more he talked, the more ecstatically happy I began to feel. And it was the first time I really understood that words are not consciousness, that consciousness comes first and words come after. Because his words were not giving me the experience, because my intellect just couldn't find a new place to really be inspired by his words. But I was deeply inspired by the fact that he was speaking. And I've always enjoyed that Swamiji is also extremely intelligent, extremely interesting, in fact, brilliant in so many ways. But it's actually extra. It was just God's little gift to all of us as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I've, I've had um, the experience a few times where I've, I'll be reading the same book that I've read many times, usually mm-hmm. by Swamiji sometimes of a master. And if I'm, say, in seclusion, and it's mm-hmm. been a good seclusion, all of a sudden the book makes so much more sense. And I've, I've, you know, I've read the book many times. And you know, what happened between the last time I read the book and this time? It wasn't that there were more words there. It wasn't that Swami got clearer. But something changed in what I was able to get from those few words that were out there. Yeah, the, all that was actually in the words that I couldn't get most of Right, exactly. Divine power. Nishkama wants to comment on that. Uh-huh. I know of more than one person, I think myself included, who can appreciate <clears throat> listening to uh, Swami multiple times. The first time, you don't even worry about the words. You sort of be as open as, po- as, open as possible and take in what he has to say. Yeah. And then uh, for a treat later, a couple of days later, then go and play it back and listen to what he says. <laughs> and uh, sometimes that's a great way to do it. You start with uh, the un, uh, unexpressed truth, as it were, and then unarticulated, and then uh, try it again with articulation later. And that's just another way that shows that it's, it starts with something way behind the words. It's a joke when you say to Swami, Oh, Swami, that was such a wonderful talk. Oh, what did he say? What did I say? Oh, dear. <laughs> he laughs. He does that. He used to do that to us on purpose a lot. Just to watch a squirm. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Uh, one of the better things that I've heard is that words and ideas can only ever be a signpost. A signpost. To get uh -huh. to where we're actually going. They can never be the truth itself. They sure. can never, you know, even the most well-articulated things can only point you in the right direction. All you have to do is have a deposition taken by a lawyer sometime with a lawyer sitting next to you, making sure that you only answer exactly what he's asked for you to realize how much communication is not verbal. Because if you actually only respond to what he's actually asked, pretty much you don't have to say much of anything a lot of the time, even with a smart lawyer, because word communication is not primarily verbal. It's just a lot of exchange of other kinds of realities. Yeah. All of which is to say, Marilyn, that I do think you should try. I'm going to go back to this because I don't want to lose this. I think it's very important for you to really apply yourself to really understand. Because... It's just, it's just important to get things clear. And you get it clear with the understanding of all that we're talking about. But being very clear-minded on the spiritual path is very important. And it, it, all of this is not an excuse to just allow yourself to be a little vague because that's tamasic. Yeah. So it's for the sake of becoming, um, of overcoming tamas, to becoming at least rajasic and ultimately sattvic, that if you don't understand something, you have to wrestle with it till you do, and then have all this as the context. You know, Swami is, um, has never had any tolerance for sloppy thinking, sloppy writing, sloppy speech. He just won't put up with it, and he definitely won't put up with it on the basis of um, I'm, I'm just being in the flow or you know some kind of excuse. He's a because he knows what's. If you really are, if you really have transcended the need to be exact in your speech, that's quite different. But as a rule. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, I have a living example of the uh, power of vibration. When I came in on a Friday evening and they were chanting in Sanskrit. Uh -huh. I had no idea what they were saying, but it was so wonderful at the end because the vibration was going through my chest, my heart. And I, I, it's just like I understood everything, but I had no idea what the words were meaning, you know. I think that's completely true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very good example. Music itself is just that. It just goes right on to vibration. It goes to another part of the brain. Yeah, brain, they, music works on another part of the brain than words do. Words are, music is direct and words are secondary. I mean... I mean, first of all, we have different languages. Somebody can be telling you something really, really important and you won't have any idea what they're saying if it's not your language, but the whole energy is there. One of my friends who moved to America and really spoke very little English and then had to learn English, she said she understood more English. She understood much more what people were telling her when she didn't understand any English because she only listened intuitively. And then when she began to learn some, she understood less for a period of time, because she lost, she started trying to hear through words. I have a lot of fun. When I go to Italy, and this is partly that I, I don't speak any Italian, I rarely utter a single Italian word, but we've been going over there for, you know, almost 30 years now since Swamiji has been going over there. And I've spent a lot of time in the company of Italians, and so if they want to say something to me and don't speak English, I suggest at least they try to say it to me in Italian. Because between the little bit that I recognize, the fact that you can always do a mind meld, it's surprising to me how much I can understand. Not always, by any means. 
But it is surprising. They'll just start telling me something and all of a sudden I'll just get what they're saying to me. It's very interesting. Anyway, power was what we were talking about, but we're talking about the power of energy here. So, yeah. Very, anything else that we need to say about this? Okay. Number 19. Yet, he, yet, and this is, he had great divine power, yet he was respectful toward, even appreciative of others' opinions, even when they differed widely from his own. One time a disciple, Dan, Dan Boone, wrote him a scathing letter which reflected the delusion Boone himself was going through at the time. When the master next saw him, he said to Boone, you should take up writing. That was the best letter Satan ever wrote me. There was no sarcasm in his voice, only admiration and respect. <laughs> I love the example Swami chooses. You know, it's, it, this is an interesting one for lots of reason, reasons. The reason Master could be like that, I mean, you could say it was simply because he was a Master, but to bring it down to a level that we can access is because he didn't have anything at stake. You know, when we have to prove ourselves smarter than others and we have to protect ourselves from the influence of others when we're afraid that they might, you know, do something that we don't want them to do, we have all these things personally at stake. We can't just be relaxed when other people behave or misbehave. And uh, one of the axioms of personal understanding is that which you judge in others or which you, which you have no tolerance for in others, it's always something that you're uncomfortable about within yourself. Now that doesn't mean that you can't perceive it for what it is and realize that it's not... Uh, it's not going toward happiness, it's going toward suffering, and therefore doesn't have to just be accepted. But when you have an emotional reaction to it, and you need to expunge it, or you need to deny the person, or you need to make the person be different, that's a whole different level. When you can't respect the person for just being who he is and doing what he's doing. I... Um, uh, and it, when you want to get rid of them. And, and you know, I've, all of us have fought our way through this, and I've had to fight my way through this a lot over you know, the first, my 20s and my 30s, just being very anxious about misbehavior. In my marriage, I've had this thing that I, it took me a really a while to see. My attachment in life is to my own ideas. I like my ideas. I think, as, for the most part, they're good. And sometimes I think they're better than others. And I, I, I'm a, creative artist type. Even though I'm in a position of leadership, my temperament is as a creative artist, which is why I like to write, and why writing is very gratifying for me, because I just say what I want to say. And you know, nobody else is there. Even in the room, I just get to do what I want to do. But living in a community, duh, for 40 years, you don't always get your own way. But I've had this fierce belief in my own ideas, which everybody's faults it's a very interesting thing to watch. Everybody's faults, I would say almost always, maybe always, but almost always, are their good qualities taken too far. It's a really interesting thing to watch. A lot of people are very enthusiastic, but then they get scattered because they let their enthusiasm get their energy all mixed up. You know, a person can be 
very affectionate toward people, but they get too affectionate and they end up with, you know, more than one woman in their life and it's just a big mess, you know. Or in my own case, I have a lot of confidence in my own ideas. And when I'm right and when I have the responsibility, that's a good quality. But when I'm wrong or when I don't have the responsibility, it's a terrible quality. And so liking my own ideas a lot, sometimes it transfers over at it, in the, my earlier decades of life. It transferred over into the fact that if, if we actually allow ideas that I don't think are as good as mine to have ascendancy, then something really terrible is going to happen. And I, in my marriage in the first years, I would go into what I called a panic survival mode. And what would cause me to go into a panic survival mode is if I thought David was going to support an idea I didn't think was very good. <laughs> now, no one else on the planet would think that was life-threatening. But for my unusual psychology, my attachment to my ideas is really where my sense of self resided. I will do myself the credit of saying at least I've overcome it to a certain extent. It's still, it's still my battleground. But my sense of self resided there, and when ideas that I didn't approve of were going to gain ascendancy, I would feel actually personally threatened. And I would watch myself become panicky. You know, and he would watch me become panicky, like, woman, what is with you? And I, I took me more time than you would think to be able to parse that apart and to be able to just say to myself, there's nothing at stake here. Nobody's life is threatened. You know, if they decorate the altar that way or do the program like this or let that man have responsibility or, you know, whatever goofy thing it was that I was thinking about. But that was um, um, my realization of that I, I couldn't be respectful of other people's right to do it their way because I had so much at stake. You know, it always had to be my way because I was afraid. If I didn't get my way, there was all these fear responses in certain areas, in certain things, okay? But because it kept feeding back to me, feeding back to me, feeding back to me, I gradually began to see myself in my reactions, right? And so Master could be that respectful, not because he trained himself to see, okay, in this prejudiced, ignorant, incompetent person resides, you know, a shred of divinity. It, it wasn't like that. It was just rather he was able to just let people be what they were going to be because he was only there to help them. He didn't need them to be any way at all. He just, his job and his consciousness was just to see who they were and then to see what he could do for them. And there was nothing at stake for him. So that respect was spontaneous. Just who are you? What do you think? What do you feel? And then his next response was, how can I help you? Because as we've said earlier, you know, he was there. He was deeply loving to all and concerned for their well-being. And because of that, he was able to be respectful. Because how could he help them if he didn't really just let them be who they were going to be? If he was always trying to force them to be something that they weren't, then how was he ever going to be able to help them? So that's how we work with it with ourselves. Why does it matter to me? Why can't I just let him be terribly wrong or foolish. And then if it's my responsibility, I have to learn to work with that. You have to understand merely to respect people 
is not to let them run rush, roughshod over you, to hurt others, to do things that are inappropriate, to take away from you, um, to, to force you into undharmic actions, you know, to take away your position if it really is your right position. But you can just still respect them for just being what they are and just work with them as they are. And when they do, like, when they, they genuinely show talent, even for writing letters for Satan on Satan's behalf, you know, he could just humorously say, what do I have? I don't have anything at stake here. He's written me a terribly insulting letter, but he really did a good job. It was a very good letter, he says, because he had nothing at stake. So that's how we have to work these qualities out of us. There's no panic survival mode required here. I, I remember when Swami was trying to get that point across to me. He said someone, he was talking about someone I was upset with, so they make a mistake. They haven't, they... They, they have the wrong thought, they make a mistake, and then, but in your mind, it becomes that they've done something terribly wrong, and then that wrong has to be expunged. And he said, all they did was just make a mistake. It's just not a big deal. Everybody makes mistakes. But what, he, what, what the real issue was is that that was the time of my life when, when every time I made a mistake, it was just, to me, it was an un... I had to be perfect. And so whenever I would see no perfection around me, I would, this is how the psychology works, I would try to expunge that imperfection because I was trying to expunge it from my own consciousness. He was, you know, he, he was foolish, he was irresponsible, and I knew that I might be foolish, I might be irresponsible, so I just tried to erase it from the universe. That's judging others. You can't just relax and let them be. The more comfortable you become with yourself, the more easy... You can just let people be. What, what does it matter to me if they're like this? You just can comfortably help them. This woman came to me once and she was very upset about another person in the community, a man who was behaving in ways that, you know, it would have been nicer if he wasn't behaving that way, but, you know, that's who he was. She just wanted me to do something about it. And, you know, I had tried to influence the individual, but he just wasn't in a karmic position to be influenced. But the person was so determined, I suggested that we execute him. I didn't know what else to suggest. I said, maybe we should just take him out into the central green and shoot him, and then we wouldn't have to deal with him anymore. Like, that was the direction of the thought. We need to eliminate this, this uh, action, attitude, energy from our lives. Okay, well, let's kill him. Because short of that, I didn't really know how to satisfy what she was asking. Of course, she didn't really want me to kill him, but that's what she wanted. She didn't have any respect for his karmic position and the necessity for us all to just live through and let him, let him learn. And it almost always comes back to an inability to let yourself be. And the, re- the recognition that I'm three years old, I don't know how to read. This is not a sin yet. You know, it could, it could develop into a problem, but it's not even a problem yet. I'm just three. What is the point? You know, that's really what we're saying. Master respected you if you're three. Like, you just are. And we're all three compared to him. So, as Swamiji once said, I love this. If I expected perfection of my friends, I would be a very lonely man. (laughs) And he said once, it's very tempting to think, if this one just had a little more of this quality, and if that one just had a little more of that quality. He said, but once you start down the road, there's no end to that. It just takes you nowhere that you want to go. But you see how much peace you have to have in your heart to have that? 
And so every time you don't have that, you don't have that respect for people, it's really not about the people you're not respecting. It's about the fact that you just don't have any peace in your own heart. This also, and I'll leave this as the last thought before we take a break, that's how you also forgive others who mistreat you. Because gradually it occurs to you that their mistreating you had absolutely nothing to do with you. They just were miserable inside themselves and they were just trying to, you know, expunge everything around them that reminded them of their own misery. And you just had the bad karma, perhaps, or even the good karma, to be sitting there and being the one that they were treating like that. I remember once or twice toward the end of her life when my mother was ill and sort of lost control of her life in ways that annoyed her. She liked to be in charge. And from time to time she said things to me that were not as nice as they could have been. When I tried to set up a, a, a trust for, the, for my parents' estate, just because it's the sensible thing to do, she decided that I was trying to take her money. Which, um, I played that one badly, actually. My brother played it much better. She kept telling me that I wanted you know, money from her. And I kept telling her, no, I don't. Well, that was a lie, actually. That was, you know, I was looking forward to inheriting money. I mean, why not? And so, but I kept saying no, which she knew was a lie. Um, but my brother was much better. When she accused him of it, he answered much better. He said, of course I want your money. I love money. <laughs> and so he was, he was saying the truth. But then he said, but I would never hurt you to get it. That was it. You know, she got the whole thing. But, you know, besides learning to tell the truth in a better way from that experience, but I also knew that she wasn't talking to me. She just lost control of her life and she was upset. And she needed somebody to pass it on to. Thank you. Nishkama, you're right. I criticize others for that and I need to do it. (laughs) Okay. He said to me that I'm letting my voice drop and I'm not finishing my sentences clearly. A bad habit. Thank you for telling me. Okay, let's take a break. (laughs) Due to a malfunctioning microphone, some of the ensuing audio is slightly distorted. When Saganesha asked me about when you judge, uh, I have to get, get the point across, but you know, you can... Here's what I'm trying to say. It's important to have clear perceptions. You need to have strong discrimination, and you can't be afraid to see things clearly. This is what we were talking about a few minutes ago, about even understanding words clearly. You can't be afraid to see things clearly in the name of not being judgmental. A lot of people do that, and it's very annoying. You know, it's like you you don't really want to say that somebody has behaved in a way that's really inappropriate. But if they've behaved in a way that's really inappropriate, they have. To perceive it is not to judge it. To judge it is to have your own peace of mind agitated and to sort of have, um, to lose, um, lose affection and respect for them in a divine sense. But if they have behaved inappropriately, they have. You have to have the courage to just see things as they are. And we were using the example of Sometimes you'll say, oh, well, you, you know, you're going to get really bad karma for that, which Swami once said is the, the yogic equivalent of telling someone they're going to go to hell, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is, it's just, it's not a good idea. But if you say, oh, whew, I'm afraid that person's going to get some bad karma for that, 
That's a fact. They are getting some bad karma, but it's, a, it's a, just an honest, sympathetic remark. I was very proud of myself when we were, I, I've been uh, reading the book that's about to come out soon that our lawyer wrote about the litigation, which is a really good book. It will be out soon. Um, so I've been thinking about that again. The day that the, the, the character assassination lawsuit, which was the one that was judged against us, in which Ananda was accused of being morally, a morally reprehensible place, despicable. And uh, the day that that judgment came in and the jury voted against us and awarded to this woman's completely false case, completely, absolutely complete tapestry of lies, awarded money to her, and it was just terrible. In the moment that that judgment came down, sitting in the courtroom, my response when I heard, when it came through that she had won, was I immediately felt really badly for her. Because not only had she perpetrated an absolute lie against a great soul and a fine community that had really befriended her and helped her, I mean, it was treacherous, really treacherous and dishonest what she did, but oh my gosh, she won. And therefore, the karmic consequences of her action was now going to roll out even farther. And that she would, and not, instead of realizing, you know, what a travesty against Dharma this was, she had the satisfaction of winning and getting all this money. But I was so, I was so proud of myself even the moment. A moment. Look at that. All you thought of was, oh dear, poor thing. <laughs> and there were so many other responses I could have had. But that was an ideal response, and it came right out of me, I say, quite proudly at this point. Now I have to work on pride, but I was very happy. <laughs> but I absolutely knew what she had done, and there was nothing about it. But I didn't have to judge her, because karma will take care of itself. That's the other reason why you can just respect people for what they're doing, because they don't need you to punish them. Karmic law will just roll along, and it'll solve itself. And basically, you don't want to get your own self having the bad karma of having to do what they've done until you have compassion for it because that's what happens when you judge and boy that's scary it's really scary when people are doing things that you don't want to ever have to do and you realize if I judge it I'll have to experience it because until I can respond with compassion then this is going to be a problem for me there was a I mean, true or not I don't know but this woman who um, she was a very, very sensually indulgent, um, extremely overweight, but a very, like, she totally embraced, um, she embraced her vices so enthusiastically that they were almost, attract, almost it was almost attractive. It's the only way I can phrase it. It's a very peculiar woman. And uh, she said that she'd just been a very, very judgmental nun in a previous life. And it was just necessary for her to just accept reality for what it was and just let it be. Edgar Cayce um, read the, the life story of this woman who was just a, 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 a virtually a prostitute, very, very promiscuous woman, and just helpless in the grip of her promiscuity. She just couldn't help herself. And he said, too, with her, too, she'd been a very, very judgmental nun. And she just really needed to experience you know, what those energies were like so she could have some compassion for the power they had over people. And, you know, it's just a way of just saying, people, you don't know what people are doing, they're working it out. It doesn't mean that it's happiness-producing action, admirable or anything. But, you know, you just have to see it in a longer flow. Like Master says right here, 
which is the one right after what we just read, he wanted nothing from others except her own higher happiness. Once after he'd scolded the disciple, the disciple said, but you will forgive me, won't you? His question surprised Master, pausing briefly, he then said, well, what else could I do? You know, it's just like, again, it wasn't like it was an effort on his part. He scolded him because it was his responsibility to scold him, and he wasn't afraid to see that the man was making a mistake. But did it really affect his love for that person? Of course not. All he wanted was for him to get well. And so you see how um, all the different factors just have to play together. I had another thought there, but let me see if I can find it. That's why Swamiji's, I love Swamiji's statement. Well, these things happen. <laughs> That's what he says. A lot of times when everything else is just having conniption fit, he says, well, these things happen. Even when someone committed suicide once, he wasn't, um, he wasn't uncompassionate, but he was very impersonal about it. It was very interesting. He said, well, you know, they, this is what they did, and now they'll just have to live through the karma. And he just didn't allow himself to become agitated about it one way or another. It was a decision the person had made, and it was an unfortunate one, but now, well, let's just go on from there. Because all he wanted was that person's happiness that didn't uh, agitate him. It wasn't that he was immune. It wasn't that he was at all uh, unsympathetic or immune to the suffering the person had been through. It's just a long rhythm. The soul has to go through what it has to go through, and we'll just stick it out <coughs> together until we work it out. That's how we'll do it. Does that make sense to everyone? And so then he adds, and this is number 21, you see how all these play together, he had keen insight into human nature. His kindness was not because he blinded himself. So many people are afraid to have a clear perception. Oh, I know what I, I wanted to say, and this is important. I'll come back to this in just a minute. I was in an email exchange with this man the last few days, and his issue was an issue, this is all about the lawsuit again, but there we are. Because SRF sued us, because this other second character assassination lawsuit were so absolutely untrue and wrong-headed, but many people just get really nervous if you say that. And they have to say, well, there has to be fault on both sides. It must have been our karma. You know, we must have done things to attract it. And I just get so exhausted by it. But today, writing this email, the obvious answer came to me. It was persecution. And persecution is when somebody, for nefarious motive, singles out an innocent victim and bullies them. And that is a case when conflict is entirely one-sided. And it's taken me all these years, even though I've heard the word persecution, to actually realize that it's a direct answer to sometimes, yes, somebody is just at fault and somebody is actually innocent. And you don't always have to divide blame. Um, it's true that somebody will have the karma, but the karma to be persecuted is quite different than saying that that person was equally at fault or else it wouldn't have happened to them. And I know in the middle of those, that litigation, when Swamiji, when people once said, oh, we should have, Ananda should have a day of introspection so we can all decide what we're doing wrong that's drawing to us this negative energy. Swami was absolutely just totally dismissive of that. He said, we're not doing anything wrong, we're doing everything right. You know, we're, we're actually generating a tremendous amount of positive energy. And in this particular case, it was a, a power struggle. 
you know, but it was also in a sense a divine, uh, to be persecuted for, for spiritual reasons is always an act of God because you're doing good work and you're going to get to be a saint by having somebody try to stop you and you having to draw more deeply into yourself to figure out who you are and why this is happening to you. And the result of, our, of the persecution that we underwent for those 12 years of litigation was that everybody at Ananda got much stronger in their own understanding of what we were doing and why we were doing it and what we believed in, whereas prior to that time, you could kind of drift. You could just kind of drift along because it was a heavenly place and there were no big problems. And you didn't have to really decide what you really felt. You know, here we were very fortunate because we had so much bad publicity in the local papers that, I mean, you didn't, you know, you didn't tell anybody that you were from Ananda without them just thinking that you were a part of this nefarious cult. That was just what people thought. So if you could just stand up and say, I mean, this one woman had just become involved with this in the middle of that, and her dad was reading out of the, the local paper all this stuff that was being reported, which was all blasphemous against us and not true. And she said, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to tell you, Dad. I've started attending that church. <laughs> I mean, it was just perfect. And she just said it just right out to him. She just wasn't at all intimidated. You know, not everything you read in the paper is true, Dad. It's just the way it is. But if you didn't have to ask yourself that question, you wouldn't know. But persecution makes saints. But there are situations in which that's what's happening. There are all situations when people claim it. So you have to have keen insight into human nature. Chris, just thinking you have of, to push the button. <clears throat> okay. uh, just thinking of uh, one of the Beatitudes, blessed are you when men persecute you for righteousness' sake. That's exactly right. It's a blessing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. That is really, that's perfect. Thank you so much. You know, I'm so paranoid. I never use used batteries. I always use new batteries. I don't care if the batteries have been used for 10 minutes. I put brand new ones in because there is a particular incarnation of gremlins who follow me around and they get into my recordings, into my microphones. And they play scratches, but not my voice. What am I supposed to say? Many years ago, I'll just tell this ridiculous story because our thoughts are all scattered at this point. Years ago, we had this slide presentation of, I think it was the Holy Land or Ananda or something like that. And Swami Kriyananda was traveling in San Francisco. There it is. He was traveling in San Francisco, and I was the sound engineer and the techie, which tells you like <laughs> We were in a really bad way. And it was a, this had this dissolve unit. This was before computers, and there was what they called a dissolve unit that allowed you to have two slide projectors running, a recorded audio thing, and then they would merge like this, except, of course, when they didn't, which was a lot of the time. And uh, he was giving this program in San Francisco, then it was time to turn on this thing, and I was just supposed to turn it on, but, you know... It's, mm. I was just supposed to turn it on, and so I thought I turned it on, but it was just completely screwy, and it just was not working. And Swami's just sitting there patiently, and I'm the only one, and I'm just messing with this thing. And I, I turn to everyone, and I say, it'll, we just a minute, and it'll be fine, you know, like this. My voice is very high-pitched, and I, I gave that reassuring remark several times. 
until Swami came over and noticed that I had pushed record instead of play. So not only was it not playing, but I was also simultaneously erasing it and replacing the soundtrack with my voice saying, it's all right, it'll be okay. <laughs> and the next day, you know, in, 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 uh, we were living in the San Francisco house at that time. I mean, he, that, Ananda was living there. We had to sit upstairs and he had to re-record the soundtrack over everything I erased. And we had to sit there, listen over and over again to me saying, it's all right. <laughs> we really, we became hysterical. We were laughing so hard. Swamiji said, I sounded like a tour guide on an, on an island where there were cannibals and then we were all in the boiling water in the pot and I was trying to, I was trying to comfort everyone. <laughs> but it'll be okay. So my sense of the attacking forces as far as recordings go, goes back way, way back. <laughs> I can still hear my voice. I'm you know, just sitting in that room with Swamiji, just having to listen to myself say that over and over and over again. It was awful. So anyway, we were saying something else. Oh, we were talking about persecution. That was what it was. And anyway, but that's a good example, and it was very gratifying to me. So I'm going to say here, he had keen insight into human nature. And I'm going to go back to that other example and say something as I was writing to this man today. When I first came to Ananda, you know, I was, tw I was 24. Swami was, what, 45, 46 by that point. He was, I was 22 and he was 43 or so when I first met him. And uh, he would make very strong statements. The man certainly doesn't hesitate to express what he feels. He has a lot of experience. He had a lot of experience in life at that point way, of course, obviously more than me. And, of course, he has a keen insight into human nature, and he would make strong categorical statements. And I would just squirm inside. And, 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 and I would have the idea that, you know, that it wasn't appropriate what he was saying. Now, I never actually really had that thought because from the first moment I met him, I always knew he knew a lot more than me. And I never thought that I knew as much as he did. As I said to one of my friends, look, what are the chances of him being wrong and my being right? I mean, let's just like figure this out. And I always knew that there was just no chance that I was right and he was wrong. But that didn't mean that I understood what he was saying, that I was comfortable with it, because I was just threatened by the emphaticness. Odd, isn't it? Because I was certainly much more critical and judgmental than he but he would make sweeping statements about human nature that would really make me tense. Yeah. And uh, we all had to live through it. But what's changed me, quite simple, was getting to know more people and just finding out that pretty much without exception, every single thing he said, I would say without exception, everything he said was true. I just didn't have a keen enough insight into human nature to understand it, and I didn't have the courage of my convictions. I just wanted everything, here it is, I wanted everything to stay on a lower level of energy so I could keep it under control. And he would make statements that would just raise the ante so far that I just didn't know how to relate to that because I couldn't go there with respect and kindness. If I went there, it meant something very different. And so I would feel, you know, if I went there that I would just lose control of everything. And he was perfectly comfortable in that sphere. It didn't mean that to him at all. But 
that's part of it. He had a very keen insight into human nature. And it's important to realize it's another one of these things. That's why we're studying master's characteristics. Saintliness is not dumbness. The more spiritually advanced you are, the more capacity you have to see everything as it actually is because you have the courage to see everything exactly as it is. You don't need it to be different. You don't need this person to be nice for you to love them. You don't need these person, these people to be well-meaning toward, toward you for you to not be afraid. You don't need SRF to actually not be at fault for you to feel comfortable being part of Ananda. You know, it's, it's just the way it is. But you also have to be accurate. Let me just read the rest of this. For even though a master no longer has any delusions to the point even of wondering how anyone could be so blinded by them, he well remembers all the incarnations he himself suffered as he went through those same delusions himself. Of course, that's one of the reasons he can understand human nature, been there, done that. Yogananda offered the above explanation indeed for the reason why Jesus would have had first to transcend delusion in a former life to be able to help others in this one. Why Jesus had to be able to transcend it. He was contradicting the, the tradition of the Bible. No human being, even a master, is ever directly a son of God. I have read that claim on the part of disciples of other paths besides the Christian one. Yogananda's answer to that was, what would be the point? It is the destiny of every soul to merge back into oneness with God. But if a miraculously produced direct incarnation of God were to descend on earth, what encouragement would that give to human beings to go and do likewise? I love it when they take it something you have no way of accessing, like did Jesus actually have other incarnations, and then put it on something that you can actually use your reason to figure out. You know, why would God do that? And there's so many spiritual paths that just have you reason in a circle. Well, he did, you know. Like the example in here of the man said that everything in the Bible is literal. Master said, well, what about the serpent speaking to Eve? And the man said, well, serpents could talk then. You know, just like if there's a problem, it's turtles all the way down. You just add another turtle under the turtle holding the earth up and pretty soon you're just there. But, but Master says, what would be the point of that? And he's, he's also setting the example that, you know, spirituality may be beyond the immediate grasp graspable nature of our simple logic but it is not beyond our capacity to reason ourselves to it reason won't always take you there but just because you just it, that doesn't mean it's unreasonable that means that you can reach the limits of what you can do with reason but it's always reasonable it's a very it's a very important aspect of it but but the other side is that master understood everyone because he'd lived through it. He literally knew what they were thinking and why they did it. And again, if you watch yourself, you realize when you've been through it, you understand it. You have sympathy for the delusions that you either literally have conquered in this life, or if you have sympathy for them, you know that you've conquered them yourself and, you're, and recently, and you remember. Which again is the other reason why after a while, you, you can see what people are doing because you don't have to protect yourself. Master had nothing at stake. He could just say, well, people can be really selfish, can't they? You know, people can be really ignorant. Oddly enough, with SRF, I've always sort of understood 
you know, it was a, those group of women. I just always understood how they got into that pickle. And even though I didn't like them, didn't like what they were doing, it was never bewildering to me. I could just see how you just get confused and then step by step you get more confused. And then you get defensive in your position and then you're pretty soon you're just someplace you never intended to go. I think my own emotions have blinded my mind enough in my life that when I see people's emotions blinding their minds, much of the time I can say, ooh, here we are. You know, not a good idea, but well, this is what happened. First it used to upset me a lot more, but not so much now. Because this is what happens. And there's no way out of it until you're going to get out of it. This can't be helped. And that's why you can just say that's what they're doing. You know, there's no other, no other explanation. So-and-so is just making a mistake because reason follows feeling. There you have it. Or like um, the time I, the peanut butter jar fell on my foot, which is a story many of you know it. The peanut butter jar fell on my foot when we were in the, in the motorhome and I thought David was being careless in his driving because he'd made a sudden move. In fact, he was being careless. But I didn't know that he actually was I just was accusing him of doing it. It's a little complicated, isn't it? But the peanut butter jar, the point, an only point was my foot hurt and I wanted to yell at him. I didn't because in the split second that I was about to, I realized that no amount of yelling at him was going to change the fact that my foot hurt. But there was such a strong thought in my mind, I feel pain, I will pass it on to him and somehow that will make me feel better. And that, that is like human nature. You know, I feel miserable, I'll be cruel to my child. I'm, I'm upset at my job, I'll be mad at my husband. You know, I'm a little kid on the playground, I'm having trouble reading. I think I'll pick up this truck and bash my little friend in the head. You know, I feel badly about something, let me pass on the misery. And gee, that's not really going to work. And even if you still have an impulse to do it sometimes, if you can realize this is simply not going to create anything except an inclination in me to be unkind, which will attract to me more unkindness. I mean, I saw a television commercial somewhere, which is just, it's actually a very clever commercial. It's a cascading series of people being nice to each other. And I don't know what it's for. I mean, it's a terrible commercial because I haven't the foggiest idea what the subject is. You know, it's, even if it wins prizes... If you can't remember what it's advertising, it's a bad advertisement. I have no idea what it's advertising. But it was advertising the fact that you help this person and then that one feels good and helps this one, which it's advertising Dwapara Yuga. I'm really glad of that. But that's the fact. And the opposite is just the same true. The abused child abuses the, their own child. Because I feel terrible, it must be your fault. This couple that I knew, they got married for a really short period of time. Because both of them had no idea where their suffering came from. So they both suffered a lot. And then when they started living together, they kept suffering. And they would suffer sequentially um, after their partner said or did something. So their partner would say or do something. And then they would feel pain inside themselves. And they would decide it was caused by what their partner had done. But, you know, for the most part, their partner had said, good morning. And this, the other one had felt, you know, well, you didn't say good morning nicely enough to me because nobody ever says good morning nicely enough to me because 
I was raised in a household where every time people said good morning, there was sarcasm in it. So why did you speak to me like that? Help, help. They were perfectly matched and their marriage lasted a few months, I think. But it had nothing to do except they didn't know where their pain came from. So they kept passing it back and forth like that. You know, keen insight into human nature beginning with yourself. Or else life is hard. Okay, end of story for tonight. Unless somebody has something to add. No? Okay. End of story for tonight. So let us fix upon our minds that we are now on 22. Flawless mirror. Next time.